So anyway, getting started, I guess the easiest way to start, and just for a reminder for everybody, what we're talking about here is uh, the combination of um, having full-time work, full-time job, and like pretty serious, successful side hustles. Um, so in order for that to make sense contextually, can you just kind of take us through your background a little bit, like how you got started in uh, engineering and side hustling and such? All right. Um, yeah, so hi, everyone. I'm Swizz. Um, oh. I say it. <laughs> Yes. I probably should make a note to do that. Yeah, we're Eric and I are on a mastermind together, so he just rolled into it, forgot that other people on the call haven't been talking to me every week for the last two years. Um, yeah, so I'm Swiss. I currently live in San Francisco. I'm originally from Slovenia, which is, to give you some context on how small Slovenia is, when Facebook had that big outage a couple of weeks ago, they lost their stock lost as much value in a day as my country's entire GDP per year. So those are kind of the scales we're talking about. So I made it from Slovenia to San Francisco. And nowadays I work as a senior software engineer at a women's, women's healthcare startup, uh, which is going really well and it's kind of exploding. And on the side, I've been running a side hustle or a side business or a small business, whatever you want to call it, where I am in broad strokes teaching programmers slash engineers how to be better engineers. Um, primarily, that's been a combination of info products and some productized consulting kind of things, uh, corporate trainings, and at times more like consulting, hands-on coding engagements. And in a past life, I used to run a freelance business, um, which I then stopped running to go to focus more on info products and having a full-time day job, which is potentially a weird combination, but it made a lot of sense. We can talk about that later. Um, yeah, that's kind of the broad strokes of who I am, what I do, and where I'm at right now. So looking back at your background um coming from slovenia um like mm -hmm. when did you like did you start out um more entrepreneurially or did you start out looking for salaried work and eventually got bit by the entrepreneurial bug like what was that relationship like as your career started so it kind of depends on when you count my career as starting my first jobs were very just looking for a job, but this was like summer coding gigs in high school. I've actually mm -hmm. never had a non-coding job, which from what I hear is pretty weird. Um, so I've done like coding gigs in high school. And then I very quickly realized that at least in the ecosystem in Slovenia, if I wanted to make real money, I had to go the entrepreneurial way because the options just weren't there to really make it big. And I've always had this ambition of uh, being like making a name for myself in programming in software engineering. And I actually at a museum in London, where I went, which was my first solo trip out of the country at 19. I went to a museum and I saw, like, I forget what the museum was, but I had this realization that James Watt, Edison, and people like that, who I looked up to as these beacons of, wow, these are scientists and engineers who changed the world. It turns out that 
a much bigger part of why they changed the world was the entrepreneurial side and starting the business. It's like um, Edison, for example, sure, he invented the light bulb, but the reason he's famous for inventing the light bulb is because he invented the power distribution system because a light bulb is useless if you have nothing to plug it into. So he actually invented everything else around it. And now he's famous for the light bulb as, oh, that's the thing that he brought into people's homes. Um, so I kind of went entrepreneurial mainly for that reason, because the opportunities back home just weren't big enough. Uh, like to give you some more, some context on what I mean by big enough, the average senior software engineer in Slovenia makes about $30,000 a year or 30,000 euro a year. So, you know, mm. it's like, it just didn't feel like that was the playing field I wanted to play at. So before leaving there, mm -hmm. you had entrepreneurial interest and aspiration. Yep. Um, what prompted the move to the U.S. and looking at salary and employment in the U.S.? Was that kind of a visa situation or like, how did that go? Yeah, there was, um, so I started a freelance business at home and I was mainly focusing on working with U.S. clients because local clients can't pay that much and they don't have interesting, as many interesting problems. So I wanted to focus on the U.S. And then as I was focusing on the U.S., I realized, you know what, I can just go over there and kind of join that ecosystem more properly. You can, it's much easier to make, to get clients if you can just talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. The opportunities around you are kind of better. And in a lot of ways, I started feeling like the environment was making me lazy. And some, I think I was like, in my mid to late 20s, I realized I'm kind of too young to retire and I don't want to have the lifestyle of a lot of my friends where they do income arbitrage and make a, a, a low, low Silicon Valley salary and they're a remote worker from Slovenia where they're making three times as much as the local people, but they're making a lot of money there. And I was like, I want to be one of the top people in the industry. I really want to, I want to be, I want to be paid based on value, not just because oh, hey, we're going to get this jokester from Slovenia because he can work for the cheap and he's just as good as the people who work from here. Mm. So that was my main motivation for moving. And I tried to make it freelance. And when I got to Silicon Valley, I very quickly realized that companies here don't actually want to hire freelancers and contractors. They will hire consultants sometimes. And even that is very... Like if they really, really have to, they are going to hire a consultant or a contractor, but they would much rather hire someone full-time. And it also turns out that getting visas uh, on your own for your own company is a lot harder. Um, so I got a full-time job because of that as well. And on the other hand, I was, I really wanted to divorce uh, my income from the time I spent. So that's why I wanted to focus on products and info products were kind of close to what, I've, what I was already pretty good at. And I realized that building a product business and a freelancing business at the same time is kind of hard because you're essentially mm -hmm. building two businesses. So I figured getting a job and building a business on the side would be a lot easier because then you have that 
income streams so that you can support yourself and you can work on the business on nights and weekends. Got it. So if I could recap, just to make sure I'm understanding this right, you went to Silicon Valley ambitiously with the intent to freelance or consult the way you had been from overseas. Once you arrived, you discovered um, that the ecosystem seemed less friendly to freelancers or consultants that were there, plus you visa issues. And then also um, going full-time would be a more stable basis for um, building a side hustle where you wanted to decouple time for money. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it turns out San Francisco is very expensive to live in. Um, so I'm curious, just as like kind of an aside, mm-hmm. given your insight into Silicon Valley culture, why why is it that they don't? Because a lot of uh, enterprises around the world, or even small businesses, um, or around the U.S., would be content to hire contractors. Might even prefer it. What is it about Silicon Valley? Do you think that makes them favor full time employees? Um, so it kind of depends. I think the main reason people in Europe like to hire contractors is because of employment laws. And at least in Europe, it's very hard. Once you get somebody full-time, it's very hard to let go of them. Um, and you're kind of married to them. And I've talked to a lot of my business business owner friends who say that if they want to give somebody a raise, uh, who's a full-timer in Slovenia, or I think it's in most of Europe, the costs go up like to give you the person a thousand dollars more per month. It costs almost two or three thousand dollars more to the business in terms of all of the taxes and uh, extra stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case in the U.S. because in the U.S. you always talk about um, gross salaries and then the details are kind of left up to everyone. And uh, also, healthcare is easier if you're a full timer and all of those things. But other than that, the main reason I think is the asset building culture. Silicon Valley is really obsessed with making the business itself valuable. And it's almost like the product that the business is, set, is building comes secondary. It's almost, it's more like a justification for the valuation of the company. And the company mm-hmm. is, a biz, is the product. Your, the clients are... The customers are the VCs and put, and later on public investors, and the company as a package is the product that you're trying to build. So if you're trying to build a company, you're not really building a valuable company if you just have a bunch of uh, part-time contractors. It's seen as a lot more valuable to have full-time employees. Um, and like a rough rule of thumb from the numbers are wrong, but I think the uh, orders of magnitude are still right. One uh, a friend once told me that if you get a contractor, the valuation of your company increases by 100K. If you get a full-timer for the same position, the, your valuation goes up by a million dollars. So it's like 10 times more valuable to the company to hire somebody as full-time. So it seems like kind of a unique artifact, I guess, of the venture capital structure. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a it's a unique uh, artifact of that, but I think it's also the philosophy of how teams work in Silicon Valley, or it's not just Silicon Valley as a place, it's more like the whole ecosystem. Spotify, even though it's in Europe, works a lot more like a Silicon Valley company than like a, a European company. Same with Shopify in Canada. They're, they feel a lot more Silicon Valley-like than what you would probably expect from a typical Canadian business. 
Um, Makes sense. Um, so kind of coming back to what you were doing mm -hmm. in your journey, you had touched on this a little, but like info products in particular, is that where you started? And if so, can you, I guess, dive into the, um, uh, the reasoning behind that mm -hmm. and how that went? Um, yeah, so my main idea was to essentially sell products, build assets that can make money or make returns mm -hmm. while I'm not actively working on them. Um, because the only way to really scale an agency or a freelance business is to become an agency and hire more and more people, but you're not really building that much equity in that. There's a really good book about that uh, called Built to Sell that says agencies are really hard to value. They're basically worth as much as the current contracts on the books. And it's not a business you can exit. It's a really hard business to outsource, um, to offload. It's not it's hard to make money when you're not actively working. And info products are kind of the easiest way, I think, to make uh, to make your foray into products because um, it's, especially if you're a decent writer or a video producer, or if you have the ability to explain what you're doing, that is really valuable and you can, um, you can sell the, that expertise and you can kind of go from somebody who's doing the work to somebody who's selling the expertise of how the work is done. And info products are a way to do that en masse, um, while at the same time also being a good hedge for still building your personal brand and saying, I'm really good at this. So if you want to sell contracting engagements or consulting engagements or even uh, full-time work, those info products can help you do that. It's not like it's completely, uh, it's kind of still working towards the same career, just a parallel path. Hmm. That makes sense. So the market or the info products can be their own products or um, you could also, and or use them as marketing for yep. like a higher ticket consulting business. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. So um, I guess with the, with the info products that you built, like how did that go? What were your experiences with different? Cause I know you've, you've done some different things, launched some different products. Like how has that gone for you? Um, I've noticed that, so I've done a couple of them so far. My first one was like a book on uh, how programmers work and what um, kind of like, almost like if you, if you had to really put um, like almost like a cynical take on it, it would be like four-hour work week for programmers, except at the time, it was around the same time as four-hour work week. So the whole concept was very buzzy and trendy, but I didn't actually know about four-hour work week as a book. <laughs> so that was funny. Uh, so I kind of tapped into, I accidentally tip, tapped into the zeitgeist there um, and my clue was that I had an essay that went extremely viral and became uh, at the time the most shared and the most read story on Business Insider. And I kind of expanded that into a book and then eventually realized that wasn't working because it wasn't really solving anyone's specific crunchy problem. It was too, um, it was too undefined and it okay. was hard to build the business out of that. But I learned a lot about just marketing and copywriting and how to make landing pages and how to sell something. So then my next one was about a specific angle on React.js, which is a JavaScript framework. 
Um, and there I managed to hit a really good time in the market where everyone was rushing into learning React, both newbies and veterans alike. Everyone was going in and trying to figure it out. And because I was a couple of steps ahead of them, or maybe half a step or a step ahead of them, I was able to kind of write this thing and then keep working on it and iterating. And that made a lot of sales. Um, I think it made like over the last couple of years around 100K across different versions of it in direct product sales. But more interestingly, uh, we said how this can help with higher ticket consulting engagements. It also led to one whale client who wanted my help on doing exactly what I taught in this info product. And that one invoice made as much as all of the info product sales combined. Um, and it was like, okay. So that's kind of, I think that's one of the secret aspects of most info product businesses is that the real money is in the coaching and consulting that people sell on top of that. That's often not even publicly visible. You have to ask. Um, kind of like a hidden product ladder. So I was doing that for a while and then I've kind of, I've been trying to turn that into a more stable, uh, stable business that's less reliant on the treadmill of producing new and new content and new and new products and new everything. And I'm kind of still figuring that part out. Um, and these days my day job has been rocket shipping. So my focus has been shifting a lot and I think it's been kind of showing in my side hustle. Yeah, I can see that. And I have some notes here to like ask about the balance, but I think, so in the short term here, one of the things um, that occurs to me, because like a lot of our audience is probably people who are doing freelance work as, as their main gig or salaried folks, um, probably doing a side hustle because a lot of the folks are writing for us or what have you. But like, if we're talking about building info products, which might be appealing, I think that appeals to a lot of people for a lot mm -hmm. of the reasons you've mentioned. But the thing you touched on there, the kind of treadmill of um, keeping content evergreen, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So assuming an audience of people who maybe haven't built info products, mm -hmm. is it safe to say it's not just fire and forget, you know, just stand up an info product and then for the rest of time it works? Like what is the cycle like that like? Uh, it's uh, it's kind of tough. So there's one <clears throat> one aspect I like of doing it as a side hustle is that you don't have as much time, which is kind of a forcing function to build a business rather than build a another job. Um, I really want to build a business here rather than just be self-employed and go from working for one for one big client as your day job to working to a bunch of small clients who are all really demanding and want a lot. So that's one of the interesting things there with um, uh, supporting a lot of small small clients or customers is that it turns out that the more you charge, the better the users you get. Uh, there's fewer of them, but they are way more pleasant to work with. Um, there's a this goes both for SaaS and for info products. There's a lot of people who say, if they pay you $50, 
they're going to have a bunch of questions, a bunch of emails, a bunch of like, it's missing this, it's missing that, why aren't you doing this, blah, blah, blah. If they pay you $10,000, it's like, okay, cool, sounds great. Here's everything you need, go fix our problem. Um, and those are the those are the clients that you want and the customers that you want. Uh, the problem is getting there. And I think it's kind of a, from what I've seen and from what I've tried, there's kind of two ways to develop an info product. One is to start with a high level consulting or freelancing job. And when you start noticing patterns of how that works, you start kind of outsourcing yourself into a written evergreen version of it. So you go from one-on-one -on -one coaching and you realize, oh, hey, for the last bunch of coaching engagements, I've basically been telling everyone the same thing and everyone has the same problems. You can then record videos out of that and start turning it on its head and inside out and make an info product where people can get the, the stuff that's the same for everyone and then access to you at a higher tier for, for specific or stuff that's specific to them. The other approach is to go from bottom market up, which I think is usually harder, um, harder in some ways, easier in other ways, where you make essentially a very cheap info product, usually like an ebook, or you can even think of a single article or a single blog post as an info product. And that's almost like a spraying tactic to figure out what it is that the market wants. What does the market respond to? Where do they, uh, where, what gets you engagement? What do people want to learn about or what do they want to read about? You make a bunch of those and then the ones that get a lot of traffic or the ones that get a lot of engagement, you dive more on that and write more on that topic. And then eventually once you get a lot of feedback from a lot of people and you see what in what way talking about a specific problem resonates with an audience, you can then turn that into either a landing page or you can start then charging for that. Uh, so right now I'm doing something like that with the Senior Mindset series uh, at seniormindset.com. It started as, as I was writing my newsletter, which is mostly meant to create an audience, an engaged audience that I can then sell info products to, I noticed that people were really responding to my career advice. So I started writing more about career advice and consistently it was getting more engagement than my other topics. So then I took all of my best career advice and assembled it into a email series and created a landing page for that email series and just offered it for free. <laughs> And I saw that it, was, it got even more engagement. It got like huge engagement. A lot of people wanted it. Um, a lot of people were sharing it with their friends, with their coworkers. In some cases, I even heard people say, yeah, my boss told me to subscribe to this and, and read everything. Um, so it's kind of been stair-stepping in that way from articles to an email series. And now it's an evergreen email series that's automatically getting traffic and subscribers and i've re uh and i've been experimenting since how to monetize that so i've started a group coaching uh program on top of that which is still being evaluated i'm trying to add a paywall to see hey maybe people will just if i got so many so much really good feedback on this so many people saying how much they love it and how much it improved their lives maybe if i charge for an email series 
people will pay for that and we'll go from there. And then eventually I think something is going to grow out of that, but what it's going to be, I don't know yet. So with senior mindset in particular, this arose out of you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but over the years, you've built a pretty substantial audience and following. Once you have that, it's somewhat easier, I would think, to run experiments for what resonates and what doesn't. What if we were talking about, like, you know, somebody listening maybe is, say, working full time and thinking of a side hustle or thinking of info products maybe specifically as a side hustle. In terms of the two approaches you've recommended, or I guess in general, like what would you recommend to somebody in that position? Presumably no audience really to speak of. They just kind of want to get going. Like what, what have you learned over the years, I guess, that you would leverage into recommending to this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on. Somehow my music started. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I have these weird new headphones that try to be too smart and they get it wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it depends on what your current day job is. If you're a, like, if you work somewhere in a corporate environment and you have a specific role or you have a, like, if you're a software engineer or maybe if you're a HR uh, as a random example or in strategy, if you have that access to high level business problems, the easiest way to start a business is to go from doing that or just your day job to starting a consulting business and finding clients like your day job who either don't have the full-time staff or don't have your your specific expertise and need extra help and extra advice. Um, so like the key the key there is that you have a some specific insight into a valuable problem and you know how to, and specific insight and a solution. And you also know how people who have that problem uh, think and how they look for solutions to that problem. That's how, that's a good way to start a high level consulting business and then go down from there. The other approach, uh, if you're more on a, uh, like if you're more of a, at a beginner level or yeah, beginner level, or if you're more like a, almost like a, What's, what's the word, like the, um, the person who's actually doing the work? Uh, Individual contributor? Yeah, the IC, but almost like the ICs are kind of a weird one because I know some ICs who do IC management and that's just a weird enterprise thing to me. <laughs> where like, it says you're an IC, but you're not doing any actual work work. You're like preparing decks and organizing others to do work, but you're still an IC because you're not a people manager. Mm. Um, corporations are weird, especially here in Silicon Valley. Uh, like, you know, my uh, friend of mine is a product manager and she, her title literally says manager, but she's considered an IC because she's not a head of something. Um, those are really good ways to get insight and then go into consulting from the other, from the more typical IC, like you're a coder who is doing the work or you're in ops and you're actually doing the day-to-day work of making stuff happen. It's the easiest is I think to just start trying to get an audience, write about your experiences, share with people around you. Um, a very common thing you see, especially in the coding sphere is everyone starts teaching people how to get into coding and how to get into the industry. 
because that is the most recent thing that they've learned and figured out. And now they want to pull up others behind them, which is great and amazing. It just means that the internet is awash in beginner content. And a lot of the beginner content is very, um, like, you'll notice as the further you get in your career, the less content there is out there to actually find because nobody's writing about that. So it's almost easier to, uh, there's fewer people looking for that, but there's more people who actually need it, but there's nothing to find, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I think I trailed off. I don't know if I actually answered your question. Just about how people might get started. And so, I mean, like it sounded like in the, in the second model there. So if you're kind of experienced, I guess, technician, I'll call it. Um, mm -hmm. The idea is start to write about your experience, especially if it's more specialized, you can build an audience doing that yep. and then apply the same techniques, start to figure out what that audience values and figure out what you could monetize and sell to them. Yeah, exactly. And I think honestly, the, be the best thing you can do is just actually build an audience and get started with building an audience. Um, it's, it's, it's really sucky in the beginning and it's a lot of work. It feels like you're not getting anywhere, but you are going to have to build it one way or another, either just build an audience or have a product and then build an audience for that product. But it's not going to market itself as much as we would like it to. Yeah, I have a, largely the same experience. I, over the years, built an audience and that made um, a lot of things easier. I don't know that I built the audience in the most efficient possible way. I just wrote into the void for years and gradually people started following. I feel like I could do better than that now, but having that audience is mm -hmm. definitely powerful. I've actually thought, you know, if I were to do a career 2.0, that I might start out just building an audience, like answering people's questions and building the audience and then iterate towards, you know, info products or a SaaS or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. You build the audience, figure out what problems they have, use it as market research. So yeah. I'm definitely on board with uh yeah, and that that's actually problem. how a lot of people get started is, I don't know if that's still a thing, but people used to go on Quora and just answer questions or on Stack Overflow or whatever is the community of your choice where your people hang out and just go be helpful in that community. And you slowly build up a brand, build up uh, an audience of people who follow you, and then you can start siphoning them off to your own channels and build your own distribution channels. Um, so I guess switching gears a little bit, cause this is going to be a topic that, um, you have a lot of insight into of interest to this audience in particular is working full-time in Silicon Valley, um, and building significant side hustles. I mean, like, you know, the revenue figures you're talking about, this isn't somebody, um, you're not somebody that's just like doing some dink and dunk stuff. Like I, it's a little bit broad, but like, how do you balance that? Like, do you just work 70 hours a week or do you have a lot of like, efficiency life hacks like what does that look like how do you avoid burnout doing all that uh, great question um i'm not sure that i actually do avoid burnout what helps is that i try to focus on things that i actually enjoy doing so um there's a uh, philip morgan who's uh, i think he wrote the positioning manual he had a really good quote once he said i write every day because i think every day so for me, writing is very similar. The more you write and the more you publish, 
the easier it gets because suddenly everything looks like a potential idea to write something to write about. And because you have those ideas all the time, it's much easier to do it. It's almost like in a lot of ways to me, writing feel writing and publishing to my newsletter and so on almost feels like defragging my brain. And <laughs> I've noticed that if I have too much going on and I can't publish for long or a while, ideas start kind of jumbling up in my head and I need to get them out there. Um, so from that perspective, that part has always come relatively easy to me. It's more like, uh, it's like they say, don't become a writer if you can't not become a writer. And that's kind of what happened to me. I need, I per, I need to write, I need that output. Um, so the other portion of it is just making sure that I kind of aim my writing my writing muscle towards the things that my audience is interested in. So that's kind of like you're, when you're thinking about the kind of problems that your audience has, you can then also spot those in your day-to-day -day life. And actually when I tried to go full-time into creating content and publishing and teaching, I very quickly noticed that that's not going to be for me because I need the supply of stories and anecdotes and happenings and learnings from my day job to be able to do that. Um, so I, re I very quickly realized that nobody really wants to read a bunch of lessons from somebody who last did anything in industry five to 10 years ago and actually has no idea anymore how things work. It's really hard to be that kind of teacher. Some people can do it. Some people are very good at it, but it, in my in my opinion, it very quickly feels like you're drifting away from best practices and can't really relate to your audience anymore. And it's harder to teach that way. Um, I have that problem with teaching beginners, for example, because it's been so long since I've been new to programming that I just don't understand what the problems are anymore. Uh, and that's also part of why I'm trying to shift towards senior mindset stuff and teaching seniors is because I can relate to them and I can understand what they're going through. Um, in terms of the actual time management, I used to do, I used to be a really huge night owl and I would work at night after, after my day job and then kind of wake up in the morning and crash land into my day job and be tired all day. Uh, what I've noticed works better for me is to wake up really early and get my stuff done before the day job, especially for writing and creative, um, creative output. That's better because my brain is fresh and full of my own ideas, not full of other people's crap. Um, but it's really hard because you have to stay off the internet. If you open the internet in those few morning hours, you will very quickly fill up your brain with other people's crap. And then it's hard to write. It's hard to be creative. Um, the other thing I've been doing a lot of is trying to outsource is basically hire help and get other people to do everything that either I'm not good at, or I don't want to be good at. Um, so for like, for an interesting example, I've had a virtual assistant for the last couple of years and she does just all sorts of things. And it, it often feels like a really weird indulgence. Like I see a Twitter thread where somebody is recommending books and I just 
send a link to my assistant and say, get me all of these books on audio on audible. And yes, I could do that. It would only take 10, 15 minutes, but it's so much easy. It's like the shift from spending 10, 15 minutes on that and thinking about it to send a link, spend 30 seconds and just know that it's going to get done is amazing. I don't, it's really hard to explain if you haven't experienced it or, um, I was trying, I was organizing a podcast tour where I just wanted to see if podcasts are a good channel for me to go on and talk and talk about what I'm working on and seeing if that builds my audience. And I literally hired somebody who organizes podcast tours. And I said, get me on six podcasts in the next X month, X number of months. And I just didn't have to think about it. And it was totally worth the money because if I had to organize it myself, I would have to figure out how to do that. I would have to figure out the whole processes. I would have to do the outreach. I would have to uh, deal with all of the hosts and everything. And like this, it was like, okay, here's, uh, you, he sent me, he created a proposal. I said, okay, that sounds good. Uh, I, I sent the money and then he sent, okay, look, here's 50 podcasts that I found potentially that fit whatever you said you want to talk about. and what kind of topics they have. I checked off the ones that seemed interesting. And then um, calendar invites just started showing up in my, in my calendar. And all I had to do was show up and be the expert and talk about stuff that I like talking about. And that was like, it felt like a lot of money and I don't know yet if the ROI is there, but it probably saved me like 50, 60 hours of work. Uh, I don't think he spent 60 hours of work on it because he's already got the standard operating procedures and he knows what he's doing, but it would have taken me that much time and it was yeah. totally worth not spending that time. So as a complete aside, I'm sort of interested in that service um, yeah. for a variety of reasons, but <laughs> more to the point for this discussion. Um, so if I could, I guess, recap, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I've detected um, some themes, one of which is if you're working full time and you're going to have a side hustle, the side hustle, the creation of the product itself, along with the marketing for that product, however you choose to do that, has to be interesting and fun to you mm -hmm. or forget it. Um, another one would be you know, some pretty ruthless time management skills. Like I'm not, you know, wasting time on Twitter or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm focused on this. And then the third one that I think is really intriguing would be the concept of an investment in the business you're creating. Presumably because you have a full-time job, you have a pretty stable set of income. So like mm -hmm. one thing I've learned as a bootstrapper and now thinking about or like dealing with the world of Silicon Valley a lot, like the difference between funding and um, bootstrapping a business is if I were to go back and do it over, I would preemptively fund certain things. I wouldn't DIY as much. And so it seems like what you're talking about here, whether with hiring a VA or hiring these different services is kind of like, look, I'm serious about this so much so that I'm willing uh, to invest some actual money in this. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, I think maybe a very subtle point that a lot of people would miss if they were just kind of flailing it. Um, so yeah. does that kind of, I, I guess, recap some things you'd suggest there? Yeah, totally. I mean, one thing I would add is that you're always investing money in it. Uh, it's just in the, when you have, when you have actual money that you can spend, it's better to spend the money than your time because 
you can always make more money. You can't make more time. And time is in a way money. If you, um, like a good trick for this, either it's easier if you're a freelancer, it's a little harder if you're a uh, salaried employee, is to think about how much is an hour of my time worth? And then let's say, let's say you make uh, on average, to make the math simple, let's say you make $100 an hour on average. And let's assume that we're not talking about opportunity costs. So each hour you could actually be making $100. So when you're spending one hour to do some task on your site, on your business, either creating content or uh, dealing with fiddly stuff, you are paying $100 for that. Now, was it actually worth $100? It's questionable. So it's like, uh, and if you're spending an hour of your time and that's worth $100, wouldn't it be better to spend, if you, if you have it, of course, wouldn't it be better to spend the actual $100 and you keep the hour because you can't get the hour back, but you can get the hundred, but you can get the $100 back. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like thinking, I've been, this has been a big mind shift for me over the last couple of years of site hustling and especially being in Silicon Valley is really thinking in terms of investments. Like everything is an investment. Either I'm spending my time, um, either I'm spending money, but you are investing something. You have to think about whether that's worth it and whether that's the actual thing you want to invest. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess, do you have, um, like for people who are, Silicon Valley is kind of a unique place, I, I would think, for basing um, a day job compared to a lot of places just because of mm -hmm. the prodigious salaries. So I guess um, if people are thinking about the balance between being an employee and being an independent um, with a long range idea of wanting to build a business, do you uh, like one of the things I've seen you recommend over the course of time is that like, if you find the right kind of salary trajectory, say in Silicon Valley, that can mm -hmm. be like building up, you know, investment capital for your own business. But like, I guess, what do you recommend for people who are considering this balance and maybe want to pull the trigger on flipping over to being full-time independent or like walking that balance? Like what advice do you have, I guess, for knowing whether to go full-time hustle or, keep the stable job and invest it in the business? Um, I think the most basic, uh, no, crap, I can't think of the word, but the most basic rule of thumb that you can use is if you're asking whether you should go full-time, you shouldn't. By the time you go full-time on a business, it should be so ridiculously obvious that that is a good choice. And you should feel it like deep in your gut that this is the thing that I want to be doing for the next five, six years of my life. And it's definitely going to be amazing and going to hit it big. And the ROI is so obviously there that it's like a no-brainer decision. If it feels like a hard decision, the answer is probably no, you shouldn't. You're not ready yet. Or usually if you dig, the, if you dig a little, you'll probably notice that uh, the common things are that it's a, it's either not actually making as much money as you think you are, and you're spent you're not uh, you're spending way more time on it than you think you are. If you compare the time investment versus the ROI, 
you'll often find, oh, wait, this wasn't actually worth my time. That's why I don't feel like I want to go full time. Or there are scaling issues that you know in your gut, but you haven't mentally realized yet. This is very common with info products where, yeah, it's like it's selling really well, but it's not actually going to scale or it's going to be really hard to scale because personal brands in general are hard to scale or because this is a hype cycle and in three years, nobody's going to care about this specific thing anymore. And then I'm just on a treadmill to keep making new products, new products, new products. And that's also not scalable unless you really enjoy making those new products and coming up with them all the time. Um, and there's this, uh, the other thing I really like is uh, Mike McCallowitz, um, also known as Motorbike Mike. He, he wrote a really good book called Profit First. And one of the principles he talks about is that most entrepreneurs, most small businesses are actually in the hole and making a loss and they're compensating for it by not paying the founder. And then the founder feels like just gets more and more tired, more and more burned out. And it's like, I have this successful business. Why is everything falling apart? Why am I not feeling successful? Why am I actually broke? And he, what he actually says is that he's on a mission to, um, to stop entrepreneurial poverty. And I think that's the trap that a lot of first-time founders and first-time entrepreneurs fall into is that they forget to pay themselves and they forget to, um, like, they forget that the business should actually be profitable and should be making money. And that's one way to figure it out is to just run your business with those accounting principles from the get-go. Um, the, the, the split that I use is that my business has to, 50% uh, of the income goes to my personal, goes to my personal salary slash long-term savings, 20% goes for taxes and 5% is pure profit. That pure profit is meant for fun and you're supposed to give it to yourself to enjoy the fact that you have a successful business that's working well. Mm. And I think that leaves 35%, no, 25%, something like that. And you have to fit all of the expenses of your business, all of the SaaS, all of the contractors, every, everything else into that 25 or 35%. I'm really bad at math this morning. Um, and if you can't do that, you do not have a business that's ready to support you full-time. That's a great piece of advice. It's essentially like a fail fast. You know, it sounds like I haven't read Profit First, although I've read a few other things by that author. Um, mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're structuring it in such a way that you're going to know immediately yeah. there's nothing in the profit category here, and that's not something I can scale this business on. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so one thing is the, the money aspect is make sure that you have enough money to pay yourself and taxes and have profits and then fit your expenses into the rest. The other aspect is to try to avoid just building a, another job for yourself. And that's where going, being serious and keeping it as a side hustle from, for, one, for one part gives you the funds so that you can uh, start it up and have almost, I like to think of it as a rolling investment that I make in the business every month. Um, and yeah, that, so like a rolling investment, or you can actually be, I am, I have saved up $20,000. That's how much I'm putting in the business. And if 
after the $20,000 are spent, I still haven't made a profit. This is not a business I should go in. And you've risked $20,000, you've lost it, whatever. But at least you didn't, you know, uh, risk your whole life on it. Because uh, five years of your life is a long time. And it's always going to take about five to six years to really build a business. Um, and what I was trying to say is to use the, the fact that you don't have a lot of time to hire services and employee and people to do the actual day-to-day -day work. You can start by figuring out yourself and then outsourcing it to somebody else because that's how you build an asset that's making a return without you having to do the day-to-day -day work. And that's an actual business um, versus being self-employed where it's just, you call yourself a business, but really you're just doing all of the work and getting paid. Yeah, um, I talk about that a lot too, the uh, difference between an equity business and like a, a kind of, I'm on my own, but I've built myself a job. Mm -hmm. So um, before we uh, throw it over to Q&A, I guess one thing I wanted to ask about, you mentioned the senior mindset a bit. Um, with what you're doing these days, like I guess um, I, I want to make sure to touch on, do you want to talk a little bit about that, like what you're up to, where people can find you? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm currently exploring what it takes to be a senior engineer at a startup or a, or, or a bigger company. And it's uh, right now it's mostly a mailing list and we have a senior mindset mastermind um, that you can get on if you're on the mailing list first. And it's basically this idea of, I noticed when I was doing a lot of interviewing at my current day job that a lot of people have the senior engineer title, but they're not actually senior engineers. They come in and you interview them as a senior engineer and it very quickly falls apart. They just don't have the ownership mentality. They don't have the mentality of making those very important trade-offs and following business goals and so on. And that's kind of what I've been writing about and exploring. Um, that you can find that on seniormindset.com and on on swizzes.com and on my uh, Twitter at swizzets. I write, I also publish those things and talk about more technical aspects of uh, modern web startups and how to build, a, basically from the technical perspective of how, how do you build a huge multi-million dollar business um, and what it takes to get there essentially. Cool. Um, well, so first of all, I appreciate the time and the conversation. And now I will throw it over to Q&A. Does anybody have questions? You can unmute yourselves. Uh, so go ahead and do that if you have a question.